So a question I want to ask you as we begin is, what do you think of when I say uh, the word good? Uh, just think about kind of the definition of the word good uh, in your mind. Uh, it's kind of like, especially in our culture, it's like positive, but meh, right? Like you're kind of, well, how was dinner? Well, it was, it was good. It wasn't great, right? It, but it was good. We kind of think of, of good as just one small step in the direction of great. Like it's the, the first tier of something being really great or really excellent. But the Bible, uh, in how it treats the word good, is completely different than that. And we're working our way uh, through a series right now uh, on what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit are the ways that God is changing us from the inside out through the Holy Spirit, and He is transforming us into a different person. And as the Holy Spirit matures us, one of the things that He does is He increases our goodness. And so today we're looking at that aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. So let me pray as we begin, and then let's see what this book has to say about goodness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Spirit. We thank you that he is at work in us, uh, producing fruit in line with your character. But we pray now, Father, that your Spirit might be at work through your Word, convicting us of its truth and then changing us in light of it. And, and we do thank you that, that you are a good God. We, we thank you that you are a good God who created everything and said that it was good. And so we pray that through your word this morning, you would transform us from the inside out in our goodness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, so the first time in the Bible we stumble across the word good is literally on the first page. So if you have your Bible with you, uh, you can open up to Genesis chapter 1 starting at verse 1 where it says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And this pattern right here repeats itself. Those of us who know this creation account, it repeats itself five times. God continues to create everything from the sun to raspberries. And every step along the way, he stops at the end of the day and he says, that thing is good. So what is good? Well, good in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word tov. And the Hebrew word tov means this having desirable or positive qualities, okay, we, we think that, that that's kind of good, right? Especially those suitable for a thing specified. So something being good is not just that it's good, but that it is good at precisely the thing it was supposed to be good at. In other words, it is created for a purpose, and it fulfills that purpose for which it was created. So, for instance, the sun is good when it shines and provides light and makes things warm. Raspberries are good when they taste wonderful and they nourish your body. They do the things that they were created to do, and that makes these things good. 
So hold on to that because in creation for the first five days, everything's good, everything's good, everything's good. And now we hit the sixth day of creation starting in verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And you see the subtle shift. After God created humankind, he declared that it was very tov, that it was very good. In other words, humankind was created to do something, and they did it very tov. They did it as they were meant to do it. And what were they created to do? Well, all of humankind was created to reflect the image of God. And what does it say? To rule, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue the earth. This is what every human being who has ever been created was created to do. And when God looked at Adam and Eve, he said, good job, very good job. You were doing what you were created to do. Now, in Genesis 2, what we have is it zooms in on the sixth day and gives us a little bit more colored commentary on that day. That's how you can view chapter 2. And I'm going to skip my way through chapter 2 and hit just a bunch of what this chapter has to say. So let's, let's, let's just jump our way through it, starting at verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one, of, out, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked. And we're not ashamed. Okay, a long passage and there's a lot in there. But I just want to focus on two things. Actually, four things. Two trees, two people. Right? Trees and people. There are two trees in the middle of this garden. Notice that. There is the tree of life. And there is the tree 
of the knowledge of good and evil. And what is the word good? Tov. And what did God declare was good? Both trees. So right there in the garden are two trees. Both are good. And then he places into the garden Adam and Eve. And they are permitted to eat from one of the trees, the tree of life. And they are forbidden from eating from the other, uh, other one of the trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? So hold on to that. We've got, we've got two people. We've got two trees. Now we have a new chapter, chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. There, are, there were two trees in the middle of the garden, she only pointed out uh, uh, one. She said, that's the one we're not supposed to eat from. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, whether you've grown up in the church or you're relatively new to the Bible, there are probably parts of this story that are very, you're very familiar with, right? So what is going on here? Well, this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it wasn't, it wasn't magical, it wasn't poisonous like the apple in Snow White. It was good. It was part of the good creation. It was tov. It wasn't the fruit that condemned Adam and Eve. It was the choice that they made to disobey God and to eat the fruit. And the choice that they were given was between life, which they could eat from, or the knowledge of good and evil. Now, this doesn't mean knowledge in the sense that they knew something intellectually. I mean, they already knew it intellectually, right? They knew what was good. What was, they knew what evil was, what good was. Because they had already been told, eat from this tree, don't eat from that tree. Fill the earth, subdue it, rule, do all of these things. All of these things are good. All of these things are tov. They, they knew how to do them. It was very good. But the one thing that they knew not to do, they knew intellectually was evil, was to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what then is the knowing? Well, the knowing is the experiencing. When Adam and Eve chose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and, de good and evil, they experienced evil. They chose evil and entered into the experience of it. And in doing so, what they declared is that they believed that evil was good. By their actions, they declared, God doesn't get to decide what is good and evil for me. I get to decide what is good and evil for me. They planted their flag of moral autonomy in the garden and said, I get to decide what, it, what, is, what is tov. I get to decide what is good. And the result as we see, was immediate shame. 
They, they looked at one another. They realized that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together. They tried to cover up because immediately there was shame there. And then going down to verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Listen, think about this. If the key to life was choosing good, and there was this tree that gave life in the middle of the garden, then this was a severe mercy. In the words of a guy named Sheldon Van Ocken, he, this was a severe mercy, where God basically says, I am keeping you from the tree of life. Because can you imagine if this entire world was filled with people who chose evil and the people in this world that chose evil got to live forever? So this was a a severe mercy. And what we see in the rest of the Bible is the children of Adam and Eve constantly trying to find life. They try and find life by constantly planting their flag of moral autonomy and saying, I know how to find life. I know what is good. I know what is tov. And eventually, when they couldn't do it by, them, by their own consciences, God gave the children of Israel, he gave them a law. And he says, you can't do this on your own, so here's a law. Follow these laws. But they didn't follow the law. And, and it's entire, in this entire book here has no good people in it. There are no good guys in this story. Until, of course, we finally jump over to the New Testament, and we, and we meet one, Jesus. And one day, someone comes up to Jesus and, and, and asks, him, uh, asks him a question. In Luke chapter 18, we, we see this account, Luke 18, and this man comes up to Jesus, and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's that, that, that word again, good. But, but now we're in the New Testament, and the New Testament is written in Greek instead of Hebrew, so we better check the definition to see what the definition of, um, of, 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 the, of the Greek word agathos in, in, in Greek, it, it, and this is what it means. It means having desirable or positive qualities, especially those suitable for a thing specified. Hmm. What this means is different language, different word, same meaning, because good is good. And this man comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He says, you know the commandments. Remember the law that they had been given because they couldn't figure out how to do good themselves? He said, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And then his response to Jesus, to the guy that just told him that no one is good, his response is, I've kept all these things from my youth. In other words, what does he say? I'm good, right? I've done that. I've, I've, got, the, I've got this whole thing figured out. And when Jesus heard this, it says, 
he told them, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Now, I know we've been reading a, a lot of verses here this morning, but, but this is where the intersection happens between good and goodness. Remember what we were created to do in the garden, to rule this earth, to subdue it, to be fruitful and multiply. We, uh, we were created for something. We were created to reflect the image of God in this world. That's good. That's tov. That's very good. And sometimes we do good things. We, or we try to do good things, and it's on the outside of us. And it's like a little bit of a, of a veneer. It's like a shiny appearance that we put on so that other people will think that we are good. And what Jesus did with this guy is he went behind the shiny veneer to his heart. And he knew what his issue was because he was very rich. I mean, this wasn't necessarily a universal to all people for all time. No, he knew this guy. He knew this guy's heart. He knew that from this guy's heart was not flowing good. There wasn't goodness from his heart. There was something else. He had just this shiny veneer on. And so Jesus went to that spot. You see, goodness is close to what it means to be pure in heart. Goodness has a, a transparent quality. A good person is one who is in reality all that they appear to be. There is that quality of integrity at play in their life. Any absence of any kind of guile or deception. The person's words and behavior on the outside matches what's going on in the inside. There's no sham or pretense about them. So what is goodness? Well, we might define goodness this way. A deliberate preference of right to wrong, a firm resistance of moral evil, and choosing and following all moral good. And do you see how this connects to the Hebrew and Greek definitions of good? When we prefer right, when we resist evil, when we choose moral good. We are doing what we were created to do in the Garden of Eden. We are looking at the trees in the garden and we're choosing life. But there's a problem. And Romans 5.12 tells us the problem. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. This is called the sin of Adam. And because Adam sinned, his sin comes to all of us. And we make the same choices that he did every day, day after day. We choose evil. We call it good. We plant our flag, our flag of moral autonomy in the ground and say, I get to pick what is good for me. No one outside of me gets to, gets to tell me uh, what is good for me. That's what we do because that's what Adam did. But just a couple of verses later, it says this, For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through one man, 
how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Look at that phrase. I love that phrase. The overflow or the abundance of grace. The gift, the free gift of righteousness. This is what Christians call the gospel. We tend to choose evil. It's what we do. And then Jesus stepped into our creation. He stepped into our choices. He stepped into the results of our choices. All that's happening around us in this world as a result. And he chooses good. He stepped into this creation and perfectly lived the life that we couldn't live. And then he died on the cross taking all of the evil, all of our wrong choices. Every time we choose wrong unto himself so that he could overflow grace. And grace, what is it? It is getting what you don't deserve and giving to us the free gift of righteousness, his own righteousness to us. And think again about all that that gift entails. Let let me reread that verse. For if by the trespass of one one man death reigns through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. What is reigning in life? It's what you were called to do in the garden, to rule, to reign, to choose to eat from the tree of life. And when we go to the very last book of the Bible, it describes in the very last chapter what it will one day Uh, be like. It says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That is what eternity is going to be like for us. We are going to have life. That that tree of life is going to be on both sides of the river now. And and the fruit of that tree of life will heal the nations. It will heal all that is broken in this world. We will finally live perfectly in the image of God. We will finally live tov. We will finally live very tov. What we were created for. And this is the future for everyone who believes in Jesus. So how does this affect us now? Simply because of the work of Jesus on the cross and the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can begin to live now lives that reflect this goodness. We can live in ways that are are suitable for how we were created. And and there's countless implications. Like, Like every aspect of our lives, every aspect of our relationships, every aspect of our church family can begin to reflect the image of God in this way. And we can spend, and will spend the rest of our lives applying this. And like everything in our lives, the key is to looking to God who is the source of all goodness. 
You know, the African Christians have a response that they like to, to use um, together, sometimes formally uh, together in worship, and then sometimes just when they meet and greet one another casually, one will say, God is good, and the response comes all the time. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. And that is the fundamental and frequent affirmation of the Bible. I mean, it's all over the Psalms. Psalm 107, which we sang this morning, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 119, you are good and you do good. And on the occasion uh, when Moses asked God to, to show him his glory, God replied by saying, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord. And what an experience that must have been for Moses. It's no wonder that when he composed one of his songs, Moses multiplied words to describe God's goodness. In Deuteronomy 32, he declared, He is the rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. And so when we say that God is good, that is what we are saying. We are saying that God is generous and trustworthy. That he is without any deception or corruption. That that, and, and that he is like that always. He is like that through and through in his character and all his actions. No matter what the circumstances are or may appear to be, God is good and God does good. He is the source of all goodness. And as one might expect, that goodness is seen and modeled in the Lord Jesus. He, he went around doing good is in fact how Peter that described Jesus to Cornelius and his family in Acts chapter 10. And that doesn't mean, just mean that, that Jesus did a lot of kind and caring things for people, which of course he did. It also means that Jesus did what was right. Jesus did what he knew his father wanted him to do, even when, it, when he could have chosen an easier way out. In fact, it seems to this seems to be another important element of, of goodness, of biblical goodness, namely being committed to doing the right thing even when it costs or it hurts. And of course, Jesus, we see this all through his life. He refused to deviate from what he knew the Father's will was for him, even when it was difficult and costly for him. I mean, just think of the number of times that Jesus was offered an alternative, an easy way out, or when he faced the choice of a different route than the way of the cross. Think of the time when the devil uh, tempted him three times to take an easier route, but each time Jesus resisted and chose the path of the suffering servant and the obedient son. Or when Simon Peter tried to deflect him away from the whole idea of suffering and, and crucifixion and Jesus rebuked him. Or when his beloved mother and brothers tried to, to, to get him to come home and give up this, his embarrassing and risky public ministry. But Jesus claimed that his true mother and brothers were those who did the will of his father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he longed desperately for any other option than the one that lay ahead of him the next day. And again, he chose to do the Father's will. And when they arrested him, he knew he could have called down legions of angels to rescue him, but he didn't. Even Pontius Pilate dangled the possibility of release before Jesus when he was staring the cross in the face, but Jesus refused. Through all of these temptations and diversions, Jesus demonstrated again and again his goodness. 
through his determination to do what was right, to do the will of his Father. And so the goodness of God is seen in the goodness of Jesus. And that is why this too is fruit of the Spirit. Because goodness comes from the life of God within us. You see, what Jesus did came from who Jesus was in his own heart and mind and motives. Goodness, as we mentioned, it's a heart thing. It comes from the inside. It's not something you just can put on on the outside. What we are on the outside is like fruit. And fruit is the evidence of what's going on inside, the nature of the tree itself. Here again is how Jesus makes this point. This time in Luke 6, he says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. In other words, what we do shows what we are. Our actions on the outside show what, or rather who, is on the inside. So if Christ, through his Holy Spirit, takes up residence in our lives, then more and more we ought to begin to show the character of Jesus in the way we think, in the way we speak, and in the way we act. Not that we are ever perfect in this life, but inevitably the fruit begins to grow. And so you see, it is out of out of the deep well of goodness in the heart, flowing from the life of the Spirit of God living within us and modeled by Jesus himself that we draw, we draw the water that will irrigate the fruit of the Spirit, resulting in us being good in our thoughts, attitudes, and words, and actions, and doing good. And that is exactly the kind of life that Jesus calls us to and says That we will be like salt and light in this world when we live this way. Salt, you know, it it was used to to stop meat or fish from going rot. And salt counteracted the natural process of of decay and corruption. And and Jesus applies that in a world that is rotten and corrupt through sin, his disciples should be people who stand against that by the way they live and speak. We're to have a preserving impact on the world. We're to be different and distinctive. And oh, how our world needs this more than ever now. As we've become, as a society, increasingly angry and polarized and partisan in our dealings, vicious with one another, the difference that can be brought into this current climate by the people of God being absolutely committed to the preserving work of goodness, of being good and doing good. But Jesus also taught his disciples, you are the light of the world. Now, what did Jesus mean by that? Did he mean that they would be preachers of the truth of the gospel, that, that would bring light to the people in the darkness of their ignorance and sin? Well, yeah, of course. He, he would have included that in the overall task of their gospel mission. But look at what Jesus actually stresses when he explains what he means by light. He didn't say, let your light shine so that people will hear your testimony, your personal testimony or listen to your great preaching. No, this is what he said. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus is 
speaking here about lives lived, not words spoken. He's calling for lives that are attractive by being filled with goodness and mercy and love and compassion and justice. He speaks here of a kind of a a practical goodness that will draw people to Christ and ultimately to know and glorify God the Father. In other words, this light is, is something that is missionally attractive. When God's people live in God's way and model the goodness of God for others, then there will be this, inevitable, it will inevitably bring others to see the truth about God and to know and glorify Him for themselves. And why else does the Bible put such strong emphasis on goodness as an essential part of the fruit of the Spirit? which become evident in our lives, in our character, our attitudes, our thinking and behavior? Well, it's simply the fact that it reflects the nature and truth of the gospel. In in fact, it reflects the dynamic of the cross and resurrection. So, for instance, when Paul says in, in, in Romans 12, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, he is echoing exactly what God did on the cross. For at the cross, the goodness of God overcame all the evil in creation by bearing it in himself, in the person of Jesus. And therefore, the cross is the ultimate expression of the goodness of God. In other words, the cross, at the cross, goodness overcomes evil. And that is the ultimate story of the Bible. That is at the heart of the gospel. That, and, and that is our hope for the future. And so, when we respond to the evil in this world by acting in kindness and goodness, we're not only being, you know, bearing the supernatural fruit of the Spirit within us, we are also living in the power of the cross and resurrection, and we are anticipating the final victory of God's goodness over all the evil in the universe. Indeed, we are applying the victory of the cross and resurrection. It's not, not at all, not ever, that we are doing good in order to earn our salvation, but rather that in doing good, we demonstrate the saving and transforming power of the gospel. Well, the cross and resurrection are not just the proof of God's goodness, They are also the source and pattern of any and all goodness we can do as followers of Jesus. And so let's pray for the power of the Spirit to increasingly bear this fruit of the Spirit and cultivate it in our daily lives, especially in the public world of our work and school and in all of our relationships. Let's pray.